0: Hey, Rarecast listeners. Join us for Global Genes Live, a rare patient advocacy unsummit, September 14th to the 25th. This two week virtual event will feature a variety of interactive and educational events, meetups, workshops, and performances. Whether you're a rare disease veteran or new to the community, we invite you to connect and engage with us and others through interactive activities. To learn more, visit GlobalGenes.org forward slash live. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Huntington's disease is a rare and fatal neurodegenerative condition that is without any disease-modifying therapies today. Vaccinex is developing an experimental therapy designed to treat Huntington's disease by addressing neuroinflammation, a hallmark of the condition that it shares with other neurodegenerative diseases. We spoke to Marie Zauderer president and CEO of Vaccinex, about the role neuroinflammation plays in Huntington's disease, its experimental therapy to treat the condition, and why it may provide benefits to people with other neurodegenerative diseases. Maurice, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, it's a pleasure, Danny.
0: We're going to talk about inflammation, Vaccinex, and your Effort to develop therapies to treat a range of neurodegenerative conditions. Your lead indication in this area is Huntington's disease. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is Huntington's disease?
1: So, Huntington's disease is a, a genetically inherited neurodegenerative disease. It's caused by a mutation in a single dominant gene. What that means is that if a parent has the disease. Every child's at 50% risk of inheriting the mutation. If a child inherits the mutation, then sadly they have essentially a 100% probability of getting the disease, but they don't get it right away. It's a slowly progressive disease, much like Alzheimer's disease or progressive MS or ALS, Gehrig's disease. It only becomes manifest later in life, typically Huntington's disease is manifest between ages 30 and 50. How does it manifest itself? So the first symptom is usually what's called Huntington's chorea. That's loss of motor control. You'll see people making very jerky, uncontrolled movements. But that's actually the least of that person's problems, because as the disease progresses, it has much more serious psychological and cognitive consequences that are just devastating for the patient and for the family. It's a truly horrible disease for which there is no approved disease-modifying therapy.
0: What's the prognosis for someone with the condition today?
1: Well, it's it's very sad and disheartening. Uh, they get progressively worse. There's a con, uh, continuous deterioration in their uh, intellectual abilities and their psychological uh, makeup. and Typically, people uh, pass away 15 to 20 years after the first uh, symptomatic diagnosis.
0: What role does inflammation play in the disease?
1: It's believed to be a major contributor to the underlying progression, to the gradual deterioration in the brain.
0: And and do people normally think of, of this as an inflammatory condition or a condition in which the approach to treating would be by addressing inflammation? Well, mostly people think of this uh,
1: and similar uh, slowly progressive diseases as neurodegenerative, but it's widely recognized that widespread inflammation, chronic inflammation in the brain is an important contributing factor.
0: What role does inflammation play in other neurodegenerative conditions and how common a link is there? Does it manifests itself in the same way from one condition to the next, or, or does it affect the brain differently depending on the condition?
1: Um, so neuroinflammation is believed to be a driving uh, mechanism in other slowly progressive diseases. For example, Alzheimer's disease, uh, ALS, as, as I indicated, uh, progressive MS. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's a common contributor but the manifestations in different diseases can be different, and the reason is that what triggers this process of chronic inflammation is different in each of these diseases. For example, as we were discussing, in Huntington's disease, there's a mutation in a specific gene that gives rise to a misfolded protein that generates aggregates, and so that's the initial and necessary triggering event. In Alzheimer's disease, it's something different. There's a change in metabolic activity that results in the formation of A-beta amyloid, which is another kind of aggregate. In Parkinson's disease, it's yet something else. An (laughs) alpha-synuclein is a protein that aggregates in in Parkinson's disease. So the triggering event is different in each of these diseases. And as a result, because the brain is so large and complex, it can happen, that different regions of the brain are affected in the different diseases, and so you'll see somewhat different symptoms. But what's causing the damage in the brain uh, is very similar. It's a common neuro, uh, neuroinflammatory process uh, driving that in many areas of the brain.
0: From a therapeutic point of view, does that suggest you might be able to address inflammation in all of these conditions with a, a, a single therapy or might you need a, a different one for each condition?
1: So that's really a key question and our thinking was that there's a common pathogenic mechanism in these different diseases that it's triggered by a different event in each disease and it may affect different regions of the brain but that the pathogenic pathway is the same. And so we went to great pains to try to identify exactly what the chain of events uh, is. And we made this very important discovery that in uh, different such diseases, and we focused particularly on Huntington's disease and on Alzheimer's disease, that as a result of that initial injury and stress, there's upregulation in the neurons in the brain of a membrane molecule called semaphorin 4D. And this was common to the different diseases. And it was very striking because when you look at the brain in normal individuals, there is either very little or no semaphorin 4D expressed on their neurons. But when you look at the brains of patients who have Huntington's disease or Alzheimer's disease, there are very high levels. Mm -hmm. We interpreted this to be a signal of stress and injury in the neurons of the brain. And then we asked, well, who recognizes this? If the neurons are upregulating this molecule to signal that there's a problem, what are the cells in the brain that respond to that and recognize it? And we identified a key inflammatory cell called an astrocyte, which has very high levels of receptors for CM4D. And when the receptors on the astrocytes bind the semaphore D that's been upregulated, they undergo a very striking transformation. They change their shape, they change their morphology, and they change the gene expression that's characteristic of these cells. And they switch from their normal functions to secreting inflammatory molecules. And that those inflammatory molecules then recruit other inflammatory cells in the brain, and, and that then drives the continuing process.
0: What is the normal role that semaphore four d plays in the brain? Well, we, we, we
1: believe that it has a normal role in other tissues, and especially during embryonic development. Uh, and it's carried over uh, in, in, in the brain as kind of an alarm system, um, which so, sometimes serves a very useful purpose. For example, we have to distinguish between acute injuries in the brain, for example, a traumatic brain injury, a car accident, or a stroke. These are injuries that occur at a particular point in time and affect a particular region of the brain. When the astrocytes in that region recognize that there is damage, they undergo this dramatic transformation that i described. They abandon their normal functions and they switch over to secreting inflammatory molecules and recruit other inflammatory cells. And in those conditions, this is good. Why? Because the inflammation clears the damaged tissue, and then the astrocytes put a kind of Band-Aid over the region. It's called an astrocytic scar. It cordons off the damaged region. Well, the brain has this marvelous capacity to compensate. When the rest of the brain recognizes that some region of the brain is compromised and is no longer functioning, the other parts of the brain can take over that function. And that's why, for example, people who've had a stroke will very often initially have a speech or a movement deficit, but over time they recover because other parts of their brain take over the compromised function. But now consider this in the context of a chronic neurodegenerative disease. Now we're not talking about damage that occurs at one point in time in just one spot in the brain, Now we're talking about damage that occurs over many years and affects many different regions in the brain. So that at first, one region is shut down by the astrocytes, then another region, then yet another region, and so on. Eventually, so much of the brain is shut down that you get to a point where the brain can no longer compensate. And we think that's when you start seeing the major symptoms of the disease.
0: Huntington's disease is the lead indication for your experimental therapy, papenumab. What is papenumab?
1: Papenumab is an antibody and we, we are an antibody company. We have a proprietary antibody discovery technology that allows us to uh, select human antibodies against a very broad range of targets. Um, And so This has given us the ability to generate these potential drugs against specific targets that we come to believe or that we have evidence play a role in a disease. And so we selected this antibody against semaphore and 4D to attempt to uh, a therapeutic intervention.
0: And what does it do?
1: How does it work? Right. So what the antibody does is when it encounters semaphore, it binds to it and it blocks it. It prevents the semaphore D from triggering a signal. So for example, in the brain, if we can successfully block the semaphore D, that would prevent the activation of these inflammatory cells. It would prevent the astrocytes from transforming from their normal function to the inflammation. Uh, And so that was really the hypothesis and the rationale for developing the antibody.
0: how is it delivered? Are there any issues with getting it across the blood-brain barrier?
1: So that's a very good question, because we, the way we administer the antibodies, we inject it by infusion into the bloodstream. The blood, of course, bathes the whole body, and the brain in particular is very rich in blood vessels, and so uh, the antibody is quickly able to distribute everywhere. But as you say, there is a very efficient blood-brain barrier that protects the brain environment by restricting the kinds of molecules that can get in and get out. And in general, that blood-brain barrier serves quite well in preventing large molecules like antibodies, like propinomate, from getting in. But this has been very carefully studied. It's a pretty efficient system, but it's not 100% efficient. Uh, There have been careful studies by Biogen and others that have determined that between 0.1 and 0.3% of circulating antibody gets into the brain through the blood-brain barrier. It may actually be higher in a disease because there is compromise to the blood-brain barrier in disease very often. But in any case, we calibrated the dose of antibody that we administer to be quite high so that even if only 0.1% gets through into the brain, it achieves the biologically effective dose.
0: Does that affect how you consider
1: dosing? Well, it means that we give a high dose. And indeed, we we administer 20 milligrams per kilogram, which is relatively high for an antibody.
0: You mentioned semaphore D is present in other cells. Does this have any systemic effect that you need to be concerned about?
1: Well, we've looked very carefully at that because, um, as as you, you can imagine, one of the first things that you want to know if you're developing a drug is, is it safe? Does it have toxic effects? And so we've looked very carefully at this and we have to date treated more than 400 patients, most of them with very high doses of our antibody and many of them for a year or longer. And the the, the drug has been very well tolerated. The safety profile is excellent. So whatever our drug is doing, It's not causing toxicity.
0: Slow progression, halt progression, or is there any potential for actually reversing disease?
1: So our goal is to either slow or halt either progression of the disease in people who've already manifested symptoms or onset of the disease in people who are known to have the mutation but don't yet have any of the symptoms of the disease. Whether in people who already are manifesting symptoms, we can achieve any kind of reversal is an unknown. I mean, we'll obviously be looking at that in the clinical trials that we run, but uh, at this time, we don't have a basis for making a prediction about that.
0: A lot of companies have faced disruption to their clinical development plans because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Has this had any effect on your work?
1: We've we've been uh, relatively fortunate because uh, by the time the pandemic became evident back in February of 2020, we had mostly completed uh, our study. So we we have a very large study in Huntington's disease ongoing. 265 people were enrolled in the study uh, and were being treated for 18 months. But by the time the pandemic became evident, 90 percent of uh, the patients had already completed the full course of treatment and all of the assessments associated with the study. And many of the remaining uh, uh, patients had already completed at least 16 or 17 months of the planned 18 months of treatment. So we were close to the end of the study by the time the pandemic really hit.
0: Where are you in clinical development and what will it take for you to get to a point where you can uh, apply for approval?
1: So this is potentially a pivotal trial for FDA registration. It's a relatively large study and it involves prolonged treatment. Uh, We expect that uh, we will complete the study in terms of patient treatment and patient assessments, patient visits, near the end of this month, the end of June or the very beginning of July. Um, At that time, we will be doing what's called lock the database, and that basically is just to ensure that all of the data has been properly recorded and is available for analysis. In September, we'll do the actual analysis, we'll be unblinding the data. Uh, This is of course a double blind study since it's a potentially pivotal trial, but in September we'll be unblinding the data and doing the analysis to see exactly what was the benefit to people who received our drug relative to the patients who received placebo.
0: Maurice Satterer, president and CEO of Vaccinex. Maurice, thanks so much for your time today.
1: My pleasure, Danny. Good talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.